The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! everybody, and welcome back to Episode Zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Ah! Yeah. My name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a cool nickname. And you never will. No. I'm in my 40s now. It's way too late. <laughs> <laughs> get, uh, get, getting a nickname is a young man's game. All right. Well, in any case, uh, yeah, this is the podcast where Whitney and I, here at Episode Zero, we look at the prehistory of pop culture phenomena, the mm-hmm. kinds of movies that everyone knows or at least has heard about and have just become an institution unto themselves to the extent that we sometimes take for granted that they came from a long tradition of cinema that preceded them. And we talk about the various films and whatnot that inspired those movies mm. we already talked about star wars and we are about two-thirds of the way through our our look back into the history of the rocky horror picture show the cult midnight movie phenomenon musical uh, uh queer cinema icon comedy uh one of the first mm. bastions of like theater interactivity where yeah. people tried to turn motion pictures into an interactive stage experience in a one of consistent the, way. One of the big six when it comes to midnight movies. Okay, um, you just okay. Clearly, you want me to ask. Well, what can, are the other can, five? Can you name the other five? Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I, name, I, I'll no, name them really quick. No, 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 no. Give me, give me a second here. Uh, El Topo. El Topo was the first. Okay. Uh, the big six. What do we got here? El Topo. Um. Reefer Madness? Uh, not quite. Okay. Uh, not, All right. no, but, On the wavelength, uh, though. Yeah. Uh, wait, from wait, wait, from, wait, from, wait, from 1971 to 1977, there was this explosion of like really important midnight movies. El Topo was the first one. Uh, that led to midnight revivals of Night of the Living Dead. That was the, the second one. Oh, is that one. considered? Yeah. Okay. So that's considered a big one. Uh, so one we don't really talk about too much anymore, but The Harder They Come was really, really huge. Oh, yeah. That was a big fucking yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. There was Pink Flamingos. Yes. That was a huge midnight hit. And the last one that came out in 77 was Eraserhead. Oh, okay. I was yeah. gonna, my other guess would have been The Wall. That's a good guess, too. Okay. Right. But you're, you, all the Wall those is amazing. Are, all those are big uh, deals. Yeah. And uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is still sort of the crown jewel in, of midnight cinema to this day. I bet there's a lot of Rocky Horror Picture Show fans who are just desperate to finally get back into a theater. And enjoy oh, that on I'm, the big screen. Oh, I mean, Rocky Horror is, it's not just the movie, it's a community. Exactly. It's, it's where a lot of people, uh, it, a lot of people went because it was their only refuge. Uh, it's a, a, a pl- it used to be a place where a lot of queer kids could just be queer openly. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe they were living in a, a little bit more of a repressive household and it was a, a bastion. It was a safe place for them. 
Uh, it was a place where you could just be kinky. You could be sexual. And uh, it, it was a really important scene for a lot of people and still is to this day. And and actually, yeah. I think it's a good segue because uh, we're talking about uh, Rocky Horror as a phenomenon uh, that wasn't just a, a motion picture phenomenon, but it was also uh, it, it was about creating a space. Yeah. Creating a space in which people could be a certain way, could just be themselves without having to worry about outsiders. And uh, mm-hmm. that is the fundamental premise of the movie we're talking about on this week's episode zero. Uh, we are talking about the 1939 star studded George Cukor classic, The Women. Edith, take a good grip on yourself. You're going to die. Stephen Haynes is stepping out on Mary. Sylvia, who told you? A manicure is? What? What girl? This Crystal Allen. Crystal Allen? Yes, you know, the girl who's hooked Mr. Haynes. Hey, what happened to the hot date you had on for tonight, darling? It's hotter than ever, dear. I'm having him dine at my place. About time he found out I was a home girl. Home girl? <laughs> Get her. Why don't you borrow the quintuplets for these? Because I'm all the baby he wants, Pitt. Now's your chance to go in there and put an end to this thing, Mary. Go in there and just say a few quiet words. Tell her you'll make Stephen's life an absolute tornado till he gives her up. Look where she was six months ago, and look where she is now. Sylvia, will you please let me do what I want to with my own life? You're very confident, aren't you? Yes, because I know Stephen couldn't love a girl like you. Well, if he couldn't, he's an awfully good actor. The Women mm-hmm. was pretty noteworthy at the time. For a couple of different reasons, but the so biggest one is... It's a 1939 film. Yeah. It? yeah. yeah. And again, 1939 was a hell of a year for cinema. Mm-hmm. We just covered it recently uh, on uh, a couple months ago on our podcast on Patreon, Only the Best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We covered 1939. Mm-hmm. A mostly stunning year for cinema overall. And this wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. No. And I'm actually a little surprised. (laughs) Uh, But it was a really competitive year, and I I guess I kind of get it. But in 1939, this was a movie that had a cast of, like, dozens of recognizable people. Mm. And none of them were men. There is not one male character who shows up on screen in this movie. This is about women in spaces for women talking theoretically at least in in the way they would when men aren't around that is the appeal of the movie that is Mm -hmm. the appeal of the story it's certainly an appeal for the cast uh and it it's still pretty novel Mm -hmm. it's very very rare for a movie to have an entirely female cast uh especially a cast this size and and indeed um it's very pointed because uh, the, the plot revolves around uh, a cheating husband mm. and the husband is only ever on the other end of a telephone mm. and or the, in the other room. Maybe uh, yeah, yeah, maybe he's in the other room, but for the most part he's absent. And what, what is interesting about the women is not only does it take place in uh, women's spaces, like it's uh, there's a, it opens in a spa, a women's spa mm. where they're all getting like beauty treatments or exercising uh, and you know, places where men aren't allowed, Mm-hmm. Like uh, but, uh, uh, women's dressing rooms yeah. or or fashion shows, which theoretically men could join, but mm-hmm. they weren't there in that one. And mm-hmm. uh, also uh, women's bedrooms and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the vacation, you know, a mother and daughter going on vacation, uh, conversations between mothers and daughters. I think in telling the story absent of men, 
when it's a story about a man's infidelity is, is essentially kind of Rosencrantz and Guildensterning it a bit where the male character would have his own movie. Mm. Uh, in, there's a, like a parallel movie going on yeah. here where he's having this, he's played by Clark affair, Gable yeah, or, or something. And it's a big fucking to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, for some reason, I kept picturing him as Herbert Lom from the pink Panther movies. That's how he looked in my head. Okay. Uh, I mean, he's, he was too young to be in a movie in 1939, but that's, right. that's what the husband character looked like in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there, there's a parallel movie here where we get to see his drama. And mm-hmm. we get to see how I think you think his... of Charles Boyer because Charles Boyer has a Herbert Lomish quality. I think it's like oh, a me, sexy, yeah, maybe so, yeah. a sexy Herbert Lom. This may be sacrilege <laughs> to either Herbert, Herbert Lom fans Lom. or Charles Boyer fans, but <laughs> for me, I feel like that in your head, that's where you're going. Uh, Herbert Lom is in, is hilarious in those Pink Panther movies. He is. He's a very talented actor. Uh, wouldn't call him a sex symbol necessarily. Charles Boyer was. Uh, Charles Boyer certainly was. But yeah, I've I've seen we've seen this the story where the fellow has like a torrid affair and he like mm. finds new connection with somebody who's not his wife and his wife has uh, so, some sort of negative quality and he has to sort of wrestle between or uh, it's or it's about how that infidelity affects the wife yeah. and in fact we've actually seen this before yeah. in a film called The Divorcee in the early 1930s also starring starring Norma Shearer yeah I, I just want to real fast before we get into the weeds with the storyline I, I really want to talk about this cast because this cast is fucking huge. We got Norma Shearer. Hmm. We got Joan Crawford. Hmm. We got Rosalind Russell. We got Paulette Goddard. We got Joan Fontaine before she was a big deal. Hmm. We got Lucille Watson, Mary Boland, Florence Nash, uh, Phyllis Pova, Ruth Hussey in a small role, Butterfly McQueen, I think, in her first role. Uh, well, she was in Gone with the Wind the same year. But I think this came first. Hmm. Uh, and even Hedda Hopper. As her, kind of as herself. Kind of as yeah. herself. Hedda Hopper, if you don't know, she was one of the uh, big gossip columnists in the golden age of Hollywood. And uh, she was constantly getting the scoop and the dirt on who's having sex with who and mm. who's mad at who and what kind of behind the scenes drama is going on. And yeah, she also occasionally did little cameos. I'm sure it didn't hurt to keep her on her, on everyone's good side. Um but uh, it's and it's and the cast goes on and on and on. Like it's mm. it's just this giant cast. Um, all of the animals who appear in the movie, and there's quite a few. All of them are women. <laughs> okay, wise choice. The only exception to that is there is one scene, and we'll talk about it. There's a big fashion show mm. in which there is a bull, like a picture of a bull. That's it. <laughs> Even the pictures <laughs> and the statues and mm. things are all women. Mm. Very conscious choice. I um I I wrote a radio script. It's all female characters. Mm. Took place in a lesbian bar and I apart from a quote from Epicurus, there's no mention of maleness throughout. Yeah. Uh, I I even tried to strike like hey guys from the language. I just wanted to nice. make it as as female as possible. Well, and that's the ironic thing about the women is that it's a story it's it's written by women. It's written by Anita Luce and Jane mm. Merlin based on a play by Claire Booth Luce. Uh, different spelling of loose. Mm. Um, it stars an entirely female cast. It is about the female experience, not necessarily the universal female experience, but mm. the experience of all these women. Uh, and yet, and there were female directors in Hollywood at the time. It was directed by George Cukor. Mm. By all accounts, apparently he was a wonderful director and everyone enjoyed working with mm. him. But and he did make a good movie. But yeah. yeah, but that's noteworthy. It's worth noticing, and. I think it's interesting, and I didn't really notice this until I just looked up hmm. uh, the trailer, so I could put a little clip in. When the title comes up, The Women, hmm. 
they added a little subtitle in the trailer, and it's on the poster as well. It's all about men. No, and then to Which, to assure the sexist audience yeah. that they could see it. I'm so glad uh, that we decided to make some room for the sexist audience. Because here's the thing with this movie. Money's still green. This movie opens with yeah. the rumor that Norma Shearer's husband is cheating on her. Yeah. Cheating on her with someone at a perfume counter. She's played by uh, Joan Crawford. The, the rumor is started by someone at a nail salon who works at a nail salon, but it's mm. spread... By Rosalind Russell, who is amazing in this movie. <laughs> she is so unbelievably over-the-top funny. Like, if she had played the Wicked Witch of the West with the exact same performance, oh, it would be just as iconic. Too, yeah. Be just as iconic. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. She's a really funny actor. This is around the same time she was doing His Girl Friday. About ten years after this, she would star in Auntie Mame. Uh, which for me was my iconic Rosalind Russell performance, but now that I've seen this movie, this might be the winner. Uh-huh. And that's saying something because I fucking love Auntie Mame. Um, so it's about this rumor. It spreads. It starts tearing her marriage apart. This is a movie that is all about women, written all about women, and I don't think it passes the Bechdel test. It doesn't. It actually does not. Um, I was paying attention to that. Yeah. Uh, every single scene... These women are talking about men. And this is why I compared it to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah. Because we're actually seeing the drama behind another drama. We're seeing... This is still the man's story, but mm-hmm. what we're getting here well, is now... he's the inciting incident, at least. He's yeah. the inciting incident, but if, if we're thinking about, like, the movie that would have been made about the male character, this is what's going on when he's not paying attention. What kind of emotional toll are his actions actually playing on these characters? Yeah. And I'm not saying that's uh, but, not an interesting story, no, but it and, also uh, feels a little besides the point. Well, also, uh, keep in mind, the Bechtel test was more about uh, a certain kind of representation than it was about a, a bellwether for quality. True. Uh, real fast, because I don't know, think everybody knows what okay. the Bechtel test is. Uh, Alison Bechtel is uh, a, a lesbian comics author. She did uh, Fun Home, uh, which was adapted into a musical that won a bunch of Tonys. She was... Uh, the author behind a strip called Dykes to Watch Out For. It's a very good strip. You should uh, look that one out. Uh, But in one of the strips, two of the characters uh, decided to come up with a gauge by which to uh, look at movies and popular Mm. media. And whether or not the movies are interested in the female experience. Exactly. And so they, they, uh, Alison Bechdel's characters came up with these rules. One is it has to feature more than one female character. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, step two, they had, they had to have a conversation. They had to talk to each other. And uh, step three, their conversation had to be about something other than a male character. I think you left out a role. I think one of the mm. important... And the rules have been sort of... Oh, and they have to have names. Have that have was names. another one. They can't yeah. just be like woman number one in the script. Mm. They, have to have, they have to be multiple female characters. They have to have names. Mm. They have to have a scene where they talk to each other. Mm. And they can't be talking about men. There was a, a really funny scene to this effect in Dummy, the film that was on Quibi oh. <laughs> with Anna Kendrick, where she uh, becomes friends with a, a, a talking sex doll. Uh, look it up. It's it's bonkers. Mm. Uh, but there's a scene where they are trying to write a screenplay together that is very pro-feminist and can pass the Bechdel test. But while they're doing it, they're talking about her ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And they start very like openly talking about, wait a minute, we can't talk about this guy because we're not passing the Bechdel test. Oh, well, Christ. 
Oh wait, can I say Christ? Does that <laughs> does that count as talking about a man? Yes, yeah. Good point. They start talking yeah, talking about Jesus Christ and they realize, wait a minute, that that also makes us fail the Bechtel yeah. test. Uh, real fast, I looked it up to be con- to oh. confirm. Uh the the two women have to have names was added later was part of the original rules. Oh, okay. Uh but I think I think yeah. for me that's the one I tend to abide yeah, by the, because it shows that the women were mm. considered important characters mm. in the narrative. But the women yeah. do spend an awful awful large amount of time in this movie talking about men and the foibles of men and the men in their lives uh, and divorce is a big theme so they're all talking about their ex-husbands and what they're going to do about their ex-husbands if they want to get back with their ex-husbands and unlike the divorcee which again we talked about that one on a a much earlier episode Mm. of all uh only the best Mm. because it was nominated for best picture in like 1931 1932 32 yeah but it was right at the tail end of the pre-code era And there were a lot of subjects that Hollywood was more free to tackle without having to, you know, really fall back on obvious moralizing. Mm. And by obvious, I mean, like, very conservative moralizing. The the divorcee is about uh, Norma Shearer plays a woman. She gets married. They get they get married quite young. He philanders. Mm. And so she decides to philander. But whereas he does it and everyone thinks it's not a big deal. When she does it, she's considered a fallen woman. Mm. And now the only people who will like spend any time with her are people who are only interested in her because, hey, she has sex. So apparently it's not a big deal if we just have mm. sex and that's fine. And, and uh, she actually ends up, for a while at least, going with it. Because why the hell not? This is this is this is the hand I've been dealt. This is what I'm going to do. She starts living you know, that life. And eventually it, it falls back and she decides she wants... A commitment again, but it's not super progressive, but it is for the, the early thirties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's certainly, I think it's certainly it, it does, not like, it's certainly not like condescendingly moralizing, no, even though I think it, it has does, a bit uh, of a tact on ending. It does uh, confront that double standard though. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Here, as the, we find out that Steve did in fact cheat on her and mm. he is in fact having an affair with Joan Crawford. Uh, the issue of divorce comes up. Mm-hmm. Issue of divorce comes up a lot, and it's basically the whole like last third of the movie. Um, and I first I thought maybe it was going to end okay, and then we just started moving into production code land, where everything <laughs> has to like ultimately affirm the institution of marriage, and not just the institution of marriage. Every marriage people could possibly have is supposed to be a good one. Yeah, like if you if you're if you're married, it means you're supposed to be married, and everything will turn out okay, and you're not supposed to give up on it. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I'll talk. We'll talk a bit about some of the speeches that happen later in this movie, but there's a couple of speeches that are just about how you gave up on Steve, and I'm like, no, I think Steve mm. gave up on you, dude. Well, and there's a, there's a speech near the end where, yeah, uh, I say, dude, it's dude. <laughs> a terrible, terrible choice. Of where word, the, but... the Norma Shearer character um, yeah. is, is, yeah, she's given this really kind of tongue lashing by an, another minor character that she just met. Mm. And, and was Who it turns out is connected to mm. Rosalind Russell's character in an unexpected way. Oh, right. But yeah. um, at, at what is essentially divorcee's camp. Yeah. <laughs> they, but basically it's, they, they go, they move to Reno, Nevada, which is evidently where, uh, where, in the late 30s, that's where you went when you got divorced. Yeah, it was the cliche. In fact, yeah. uh, Norma Shearer... So later on in the... It's, I want to talk a little about some of the stuff that happens in the middle, but mm. uh, about halfway through the movie, Norma Shearer finally like has it out with Joan Crawford. They mm. like wind up in like the same like department store, and it's a whole scandal. They confront each other. It's a whole thing. And she starts having it out with her husband. It seems like they just want to have a divorce... 
Mm-hmm. And so she winds up on a train to Reno, and it turns out the train is filled with nothing but women going to Reno, including <laughs> and the, and with the exception of um, uh, Joan Fontaine, uh, who it turns out at the last possible second was having marital troubles. Mm. We didn't actually get it; we weren't actually privy to most of those. Uh, she uh, she doesn't know him, so it's a sudden influx of new characters, and they're all living in like a trailer park. In Reno for a couple of weeks while they're waiting for their divorces to be finalized. And they end up having like this cool cowboy enclave where everyone's cool. And then Rosalind Russell shows up because even though everyone hates her and Mm -hmm. she basically just like for the purpose of I'm bored and I want to stir up some shit Mm -hmm. like basically turned Norma Shearer's marriage troubles into public knowledge of Front page scandal. Boy, was that a slow news day. <laughs> uh, well, this was, you know, rich people around town. We're still, being reported by local. But yeah. Still, still, it's the banner headline. <laughs> it's a lot. It takes up more than one line. <laughs> like, like when war broke out, they just said war. They didn't give it two lines. Like, <laughs> it's huge. So, anyway, it's really fascinating. Um. Okay, so we got the... Uh, I just totally lost my train of thought, and it was really embarrassing. I'm going to leave it into the podcast, because that's human, isn't it? <laughs> I want to talk about this fashion show. Okay, um, the fashion show, um, it, it stung me to watch, because I got to project the women before I, I watched it for this. Uh, when you project a film, you're not really watching it. So I, I don't consider that I've seen it until I actually saw it today. But uh, the print we got, it was on 16, 16 millimeter film. And the fashion sequence was cut out, which evidently was pretty common at the time, because I think I, the fashion sequence is in color, whereas the rest of the film is in black and white. It was shot yeah. in beautiful Technicolor film. And uh, it just punches you right in the eye. It's just a, a, a little bit of a, a colorful, uh, dazzling intermission. Hmm. Nothing nothing significant really happens during the fashion show in terms of, like, plot or character. But I, I think it might have been a little too, like, slightly more expensive to print on film or to keep that in a separate reel. It wasn't common to splice the two reels together, even yeah. though projectionists can do that. I don't see why not. Yeah, it's not that difficult. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a, a whole. There was a whole slew of prints that was going around that had the fashion show removed, and we got so many angry customers who came to see the women specifically for the de- the dazzling color fashion show, uh, and were upset when it wasn't in the movie. Well, apparently the, it was originally shot in black and white, yeah. and then they decided to redo it in Technicolor um, using mm. a process that actually the initial transition is gorgeous. Mm. Um, it's a black and white movie, and then. You see the stage, and all around the stage is still in black and white, but the stage is in color. Yeah. This is a complicated photographic process that they apparently developed for The Wizard of Oz, but they decided to go the more analog route. Mm. Um, and just, Wizard of Oz works great. Same same year, similar trickery. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they it's all the women, they go to a department store, and they just show off all of the new fashion lines. Mm. Uh, the dresses in this movie were done by a designer named Adrian. Adrian is one of those fashion designers where you, if you watch a lot of old movies, there's a certain names you're going to notice in the credits over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like, oh, um, yeah, I, I guess uh, I guess that actor was in a bunch of things, wasn't he? Like, no, you're going to see Edith Head 
all over the place. <laughs> and you're going to see Adrian mm-hmm. all over the place. There are certain costume designers who just, even if they didn't do the full costume, you will see in the, in the credit of a movie like um, Claudette Colbert's out dresses by Adrian. Right. Because they're the star. Adrian was a big fucking deal. And Adrian did designed like apparently like hundreds of dresses for this movie. Mm. And this show was basically a love letter to Adrian because it's just showing off everything Adrian's got mm. in his in his little bag. Yeah. Some of the dresses in this sequence are really gorgeous. Some of them look ridiculous. <laughs> Some of them have plastic, like clear well, plastic visors on them. And I just, I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm really, I know I don't know a lot about fashion, but pretty sure that wasn't a thing. Hmm. Pretty sure that wasn't a hip for a while. Adrian didn't, didn't nail it that time. I'm, I'm looking Someone at some correct of me the, if I'm wrong. I'm looking at some of the, the fashions in this, in old movies, like from the 1930s. And I'm always a, a little bit... I'm a little bit suspicious as to whether or not the costumes I'm seeing on the women specifically were popular fashions at the time mm. or were invented for the film because some of those things are bleeding absurd. Yeah. Especially when it comes to the hats. Oh, well, big hats yeah. was a big deal. Big hats, hats was a big hats deal. Hats were, were, were an enormous fucking deal. I've actually oh, yeah. like and men, read, read up on that. Yeah, men, men wore just wore hats. No, but I mean like, I mean, like and, fancy and, women's yeah. hats. And they were, fancy were, women's were hats, fascinators. Yeah. You know, men, they, men, that, that men and women deal. all wore wore big, complicated hats, and it seems to me like a lot of those costumes were movie costumes rather than high fashion. Well, and some well, also high fashion isn't mm. necessarily always designed for everyday wear. Right, a lot of it is conceptual, and it is designed to be sort of broken down into mm. its base components for to be transformed into everyday wear later on. Like those mm. Paris fashion shows, where people are wearing bizarre out there outfits. No one's expecting us to walk around the street in those. That's basically <laughs> there to show off. Look what we can do with fashion. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you look at, watch The Devil Wears Prada. Meryl Streep has a great uh, monologue mm. about how a big fashion line that might not seem like it has anything to do with you eventually filters down into Kmart. Yeah. And that's similar here, too. And people are making these big swings, and sometimes they're cool, sometimes they're not. Mm. And, and again, kudos to Adrian. I'm not mocking Adrian. Mm. Adrian and Edith had all these wonderful designers who did all these things that I couldn't do if you put a gun to my head. Like, absolute total respect. And this whole Technicolor sequence is gorgeous. Mm. It's really fun to watch. Uh, and yet, none of the costumes, none of the costumes in this Technicolor sequence are half as good as the costume Rosalind Russell wears in her third scene, which has three human eyes on it, and I don't know why. <laughs> it's like that uh, like that Dolly design sequence from, uh, was it Notorious? No, Spellbound. Or Spellbound. Yeah, Spellbound has the Dolly mm-hmm. sequence. Yeah, it's super fucking weird. So Rosalind Russell is, uh, you know... And, and again, I, I didn't know her in person, and oftentimes when you're watching someone on camera... How they come across physically depends a lot on who they're next to. Mm. Like, Tom Cruise can seem really tall. He's not really tall. But you put he's, him next to shorter people and he can look that way. He's, I think he's 5'9", he's average height. But I think yeah. he's a little shorter than that, but whatever. He's, like, yeah. he's, just not, he's just not particularly tall. But you put him next to shorter actors and he will look tall. I'm not sure how lanky Rosalind Russell is, but they're playing it up. Yeah. And so she comes across... As like significantly taller than other people, it helps that she's wearing big hats mm. and outfits that accentuate like the length of her legs, not necessarily the sexuality, because that's not her character, right? Um, and she is 
a living cartoon. And apparently this was by design. Because Rosalind Russell's character, her whole thing is she's a busybody who loves gossip. She loves drama. And she will happily destroy someone's life if it makes her day less boring. Mm. And Rosalind Russell, brilliant actor, was instructed by George Cukor to play it up as big as you can. Mm. Because, and I actually agree with this rationale. If she's too realistic, we'll simply hate her. Like, that's it. We'll just hate her. Mm. She'll, she'll be, it'll, it'll be like, an, they didn't invent Neil LeBute yet, but it'll be like a Neil LeBute <laughs> story. It'll just be disgusting. Yeah. Just a horrible sociopathic human being. I'm probably using that word wrong, and I apologize if I am. Uh, however, if she's a cartoon character, we can acknowledge that she's evil, but still have fun watching her. And, and she the, is just, the way, like, her hands, pull, you know, like, punk, like, she moves up her hands like they're claws. <laughs> like, she's a velociraptor. <laughs> like, a lot of the time. Like, she's just giving an incredible physical performance. And she's the one who bites somebody later on. Yeah. So she, she is, she's a literal, literal velociraptor. She literally bit another actor, and the rumor that I heard is that it left a scar. Well, I hope <laughs> that's true. Jesus. Apparently, that's something that uh, made this movie kind of complicated for the studio, um, again, studios in the golden age of Hollywood were monstrous to their performers. They owned mm. them. Like their contracts were ironclad. Their contracts were like, you know, you cannot get married because we need people to think that you're available because we were going to sell you as a sex symbol. Bullshit. Mm. Absolute horrible bullshit. Read up on what happened. Read up on the many things, the many things that happened to Judy Garland in the studio system. That's just mm. one example. And a no, lot of just, just watch the film Judy for like some dramatization of that. Yeah, and that's mostly like looking back. Like you actually look mm-hmm. at some of the shit she went through. It's just harrowing. One of the things that studios would do is if they're making a movie, they would play up like, oh, they, these two sexy stars are going to be in the movie, and maybe they're having a romance off screen as well. Mm. They couldn't really do that with the women, or at the very least, they couldn't do it at the time because. Mm. Well, things were very conservative. So apparently one of the things they did was they tried to play up the idea that the many, many stars in the film were all feuding with each other. Right. Right. Which apparently was no more true than any other set. Just people got on each other's nerves. Well, especially when when you're living in that studio system and you are owned by a studio and you're constantly being told that you're a star, mm-hmm. you're going to be feuding with other people who also think that they're stars. Yeah, there's, a, there's an ego thing. Every, a lot yeah, of directors are in that as fun. well. And, and and that's also, you know, common for just actors. Well, the artists as well. Yeah. You know, it, it, it takes mm-hmm. some people who go into the arts have an ego. Some people mm-hmm. don't. And it's very, very tricky to navigate that realm. But if you have the talent, you might be able to do it. It's just very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um like the, I've heard stories about the making of the women, you know, but most of them were just the biggest ones are like kind of petty. Hmm. Like uh, uh, I, re- I read a story where uh, Norma Shearer had to, when they film a scene with two actors and both actors are on screen, it's really simple. When they film a screen with only one actor on camera, they'll often ask the other actor to be off camera and deliver their lines, the other right. half of the scene. Or if they're not available, sometimes they'll just have a script reader do it or the director. Or a, or, or a stand-in. Or a stand-in, whatever. Hmm. Uh, apparently when they were filming some of Norma Shearer's, I think it's Norma Shearer's scenes with Joan Crawford, mm. uh, Joan Crawford, when she was off camera doing that bit, uh, she was knitting really loud, <laughs> <laughs> just clickety clackety clickety clackety. It was pissing Norma Shearer off and Joan Crawford like ended up walking off in a huff. Joan <laughs> Crawford was knitting. awful. <laughs> it's just awful to everybody. <laughs> I have uh, a lot of respect for, for, for Joan Crawford. 
as to a, a de- as, as a, a performer, performer. Yeah. as a performer, <laughs> a lot of things mm. in her real life were actually pretty shitty. But mm. boy, what a fascinating human being! Uh, yeah. Say that, uh, Dorma Shearer, my secret girlfriend. Uh, so I, I'm fixated on Norma Shearer. I love Norma Shearer. She she's is a, a great. Gr- she's not just a great actor. She's very natural. Yeah. Uh, you look at uh, Joan Crawford, or even Rosalind Russell. They're clearly like putting on airs. They have they have a- affected performances, and I feel like Norma yeah. Shearer going back even to the early 30s, had this very natural quality. She always seemed very comfortable. She feels like a very scenes. modern actor. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah she would, she, and she, mm. the, her Romeo and Juliet, she was miscast. It's not a good movie. But mm. other than that, I've never seen a bad Norma Shearer performance. Yeah. She's and, always great. And and she's doing what she can with uh, Romeo and Juliet. She clearly yeah. knows the material. Yeah. That's just a bad movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in all of the films I've seen her in, she always is completely natural, kind of has a, a glimmer to her. Mm-hmm. And not not even that like movie star quality, kind of like a, a she's like looking through the screen and and letting you know that she knows what she's doing. She's I, got I always, she's got it's, quote unquote it. She's got that uh, yeah, it quality, that um, very natural on screen uh, charisma. The, yeah, the, that term by the way, it's like if you have it or even the term it girl uh, or it it guy uh, comes from a movie called It. Uh, not the one about the killer clown. It's Clara Bow, silent uh, romantic comedy mm-hmm. from 1920. Ish. 1920X. Early 20s. And yeah, um, yeah and Clara Bow uh, was a, a very famous silent film star. And she, uh, the story of it is she plays a woman who, in order to protect a friend with an illegitimate child, pretends to be the child's mother, uh, taking on the bad reputation. It's all very dated. Uh, but she, uh, all because of that movie, she became this gigantic star just because she had so much charm and charisma. She became the mm. it girl. And that's where the term comes from. Yeah. Uh, it comes from a film called it. Uh, Norma Shearer definitely has it. She is, she's a huge star and I find it very disappointing that she's not mentioned in the same breath with people like Joan Crawford and people mm. like Betty Davis. Well, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, mm. Norma, Norma Shearer quit acting in the early 40s. Vaughn, I, I think that may be a big part I of it. I think so. I think she she was a big star. Mm. And for a while, actually, I'm trying to think. I know she made some silent films. I'm trying to say, like, yeah, she'd been making movies since, like, 1920, starting mm. in very, very tiny roles. Was a big hit in the, in the silent era. Mm. And then uh, made movies throughout the 30s. And then uh, she only made three movies after the women. And then that was it. And I don't know the whole story behind that. But uh, I mean, yeah, she... where's Norma Shearer and... Uh, uh, not Norma Shearer. Where's uh, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, for example. Mm-hmm. Rosalind Russell kept making movies for decades. And people knew them throughout their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And again, this is before home video. This is before even TV was really a popular thing in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Everyone didn't have a TV in 1942. So... Yeah, her, her star wasn't, like, kept as shiny mm. for as long yeah, for as many people, which is a shame because she's yeah. fantastic. She, she's fantastic, and look at look at the roles she gravitated to, for, uh, ignoring Juliet for the time being, but mm. between this film and especially the, the divorce, this film and The Divorcee, yeah. uh, she is taking on these actually very sterling feminist roles, yeah. where these are women who are taking a lot of agency, uh, addressing double standards and the way women are treated and presented women as a little bit more sophisticated when it came to sexuality. Mm. They weren't fallen women, uh, nor were they blushing virgins. Uh, yeah. 
this is just a little bit more of a realistic female character. And I think she can be held up as a feminist icon as a result of the role, some of the roles she chose. They're saying you're a fan. I, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm a big, big fan of Number Sure. I'm a big fan of a lot of people in this movie, particularly mm. Rosalind Russell. I've been a fan of Rosalind Russell since I saw Auntie Mame as a young kid. Uh-huh. Um, she's absolutely fucking perfect in that movie. <laughs> uh, she's obviously completely wonderful in His Go Friday, which is considered a classic. I, um, I, I would wonder if a character like Cruella DeVille oh, was, was modeled after Rosalind Russell I wouldn't in be surprised. this film. I would not be it's like surprised. Fa- fashion obsessed, vaguely villainous. Uh, Maybe. Honestly, I would not be surprised at all. Um, She's wonderful in this. Joan Fontaine is really wonderful in this. And this was just before she had her big, big, big breakout in Rebecca. And Mm -hmm. then would go on a year later to win the Academy Award for Best Actress for uh, Suspicion. Um, Joan Fontaine is a brilliant actor. Mm -hmm. She plays uh, a young wife in this whose problems with her husband all stem from money. As in, he's not making any and she is. Mm -hmm. And that's leading to all of these issues with pride. Um, she's absolutely wonderful. Um, everyone's just really, really fucking good in this movie. Um, the issue that I have with this movie, and I, and I was really with this movie for a while. Like Mm. I initially like was like, sort of like, I love the idea of the movie and I love the cast and everything about it. It sounds really cool. I, I initially got off on maybe a sour note because right after the credits, because it's a big, big, big cast, uh-huh. Um, they give all of the actors not just their list. They don't just list their names in the opening credits like they often do. Mm. Uh, they gave everyone like a title card, like so. Here's Norma Shearer's face, mm. and then here's the character she plays. But instead of just showing Norma Shearer's face, mm. they would show an animal, and then that animal would fade into Norma Shearer. Yeah, and oftentimes they were cool things like a leopard. Mm. You know, and then occasionally it would be like a horse, like a goat or something, and it would yeah. and it would like fade into like this character actor. And frankly, it's mildly insulting, if not outright insulting, half the time. Mm. And so I was just like, oh, I hope that's not the tone we're going for. It's sort of cutesy, but luckily it's it's it feels condescending in the credits. But luckily the film isn't. Condescending. I was I was worried initially, and then fortunately the mm. film got off on this great start, and it's got a wonderful energy, and we're just following everyone through this spa, and there's a million mm. characters in the first scene alone, and then Rosalind Russell starts taking hold of the plot and strangling it. And <laughs> so fucking funny, and then Norma Shearer starts mm. being this total heart of the tale, and and I'm a little annoyed that this is a story about the women, but it's all about. The men, but of course, we're talking about a world in which there's like an intense patriarchal well, element and, that and is that the, inescapable, and that the the wild caprices of a man can have these gigantic ripples mm-hmm. in all of the women in their lives. So ultimately, that's what the film is about. It's just mm. not necessarily how it seems advertised, unless you look at that uh, uh, mm. logline. Yeah. yeah, it's about men. Fuck off. Uh, but the thing that started rubbing me the wrong way, I was with this movie for so long. Mm. was really into it. I thought it was funny, well, it was sweet, romantic. Briefly taking you through the story, uh, engaging, the, yeah. the, the off-screen male character has been having an affair with Joan Crawford. Right. Uh, there's a, a lot of to-do as to whether or not uh, Norma Shearer is going to stay with her husband, Yeah. Uh, ultimately choosing to divorce him. Yeah. Just it's been too humiliating and there's nothing she can do to salvage this. I really like we the generational then, uh, aspect where her yeah. mom says, you know, in my day we couldn't get divorced. Yeah, so we, we just, just had gutted to it out. We just gutted was, it out, and uh, we ended up. Eventually, he'll get bored, and mm. he'll be with you. Mm. And Rumbershire is like, "Well, I don't believe in that." that she's that, like, that's "Well, a, that's a horrible way to do things." Yeah, but I appreciate that the conversation mm. was had, and mm. I thought that was a really, really mm. intelligent way to have that um, conversation. 
we uh, we fast forward. It's almost two years. It's like a year and a half. And it, it turns out that Joan Crawford has married this guy. Yeah. But she's also a villainess <laughs> and has been having an affair with some, like, I think it's like a cowboy guy on the side. Well, it turns out they meet a woman who's had like four divorces and she's really wealthy mm. in Reno. And then she has started dating a guy uh, and then marrying him who's like a cowboy. And she thought she has, he'd have a great musical career ahead of him. So she's gotten him like a job on the radio singing, mm. you know, country music. And now Joan Crawford is sleeping with that guy. Yeah. And she's having all of these illicit affairs with her own. And this is a big plot point, her own private telephone line. No reason to have that unless you're having sex. It's a private telephone line next to her bathtub. And her bathtub is huge and comical. And it's got mm. like a curtain she can turn. But hit down with like a button, like <laughs> it's absurd. It's weird, weird technological marvel. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but, uh, uh, but basically, the point boils down to uh, is Steve is Norma, married to the, bat, the wrong person yeah, and Norm, he's miserable. Norma Shearer and off-screen guy's daughter mm-hmm. uh, overhears Joan Crawford on the phone, relays some information back to Norma Shearer, and so she uses that information to essentially enact sort of a comical revenge plot right at the end. Yeah. Mm. Um. And that's kind of the thing that started bugging me a bit. Because when we're in Reno and we're hearing a lot of different people talking about divorce and Rosalind Russell shows up because it turns out that this other woman they were in Reno with was the one who was sleeping with her husband and that's why she's getting a divorce. Everyone's miserable. Mm. Um, There's a speech that one of the supporting characters gives to Norma Shearer Mm. that just pissed me off. Because the speech is all about how your husband. You should. You should be great. Is it the you should be grateful speech? It's not that you should be grateful. Mm. Like that's bad enough. But like it's not just you should be grateful. It's your husband had an mm. affair because he's weak because he's a man. They're children. Mm. You have to be their wife, their mother, their lover, their friend, their confidant, their agent, their accountant. You would be everything for them. Mm. And if you're not. You're the one failing him. And yeah. this, this is your fault well, for not fighting for him. Hmm. And a part of me is like, that is a really fucked up message. And at first I was thinking to myself. Well, I mean, it's not the message of the movie. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, uh, hang on. Yeah, I, right. I'm getting there. I'm, getting, right, I'm, telling, right, I'm, t- right. I'm telling the narrative. I'm telling my reaction as the story went. All right. Okay. Think, think of this as a live tweet. <laughs> All right. So I'm pissed off because this is a terrible message. And then she gets on the phone with him. And at first it seems like maybe she's like going to decide to reconcile, make this work. And then she finds out that since they got divorced, he's already married Joan Crawford. Mm. So we cut to a year or two later and he's married to Joan Crawford. And by all rights, by everything we've heard, they're miserable. Uh, she's actually doing fine. <laughs> she's got mm. like this fancy apartment and all these great clothes and everyone loves her. She's, <laughs> she's great. And I'm actually like, okay, I'm kind of like where this is going. And she hears through the grapevine through her daughter that, you know, Joan Crawford's cheating on Steve. And then it all becomes about we have to rescue Steve from this horrible person. And then they do in this big elaborate thing where everyone's running outside and humiliating Steve in public and then coming back in and tell everyone what they did, which is kind of hilarious and makes more sense Mm. on the stage, but whatever, it works. (laughs) And then it ends with Norma Shearer after we've, you know, ended his marriage spectacularly and Mm. we've sent... Joan Crawford packing back to the perfume counter. Norma Shearer walks up to the camera with her arms open as if to say, Hmm. 
I'm yours. Yeah. And there's something that kind of pissed me off about that because I don't think it was. I don't think it was about that. I don't well, think it should have been about that. I don't think that, it should have been about like no, getting the, Norma Shearer. The, the, you know, the like, last moment was really inauthentic. It exactly. Felt, that's it felt what, like this sort of forced yeah. in happy ending. When I think the more satisfying ending would have been okay. She gets to humiliate Joan Crawford. Yeah. Who's who's. A villain. She's and, uh, yeah, not, she, maybe she's, not as evil as Rosalind Russell because at least she's in her character. Like Rosalind Russell hmm. betrays people. Yeah, no, but, uh, Joan Crawford doesn't betray anyone. She's just in it for herself. Well, she she's, she does betray her husband. She's you know. Well, okay, later on, on yeah. yes, later on, yes. Uh, you, I apologize. You're yeah, right. uh, you, you're more right than I. She, she's she is deserving of the comeuppance. Is my point. Some comeuppance. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the, yeah, there's this kind of door slamming thing and it's it's about uh, how there's a, a great line of dialogue how she says like the jungle cat is back and she like has her claws out uh, Norma Shearer says that and so they have this big like final finale where they, they get to using Hedda Hopper and all the other characters sort of bring all the truth to light at exactly exactly a right calculated moment to humiliate everybody mm. who deserves it uh, who deserves it and at the end of that, she should have, and she ends up saying, okay, and I'm back, and she walks off screen, and, and the male character is just standing off screen. Yeah. It's like the closest we ever got to him. Yeah. We, the, I, the male character is the camera, basically. Yeah. What should have happened is, I've done it. I've fixed everything. Your reputation is salvaged. I feel vindicated now. Also... Fuck you. Yeah. That should have been the ending. <laughs> exactly. And, that's the, and again, this is production code. Yeah. They weren't allowed to do that even if they wanted mm. to. And I don't know the original play. Maybe the original play, this is exactly what happened in it. Mm. But it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't really feel like it's the theme. I appreciate that the movie presents ideas about womanhood and ideas mm. about marriage that even at the time could have been considered antiquated because mm. they're presented that way. There's like, this is a previous generation's mentality. This is a wide variety of women. Mm-hmm. Mostly from the same walk of life, different social classes, but, you know, there's only like one or two women of color in it, yeah. for example. That's par for the course in the era. Mm. It, it was, sucks, but it's what it we a, got. It was a racist time. It, it was, was a racist system. We're not going to see black people on screen. Not a lot, no. And Butterfly McQueen was in it. Yeah. And she's not even credited. Oh, shit, she's not. No, she, she didn't get a credit. Yeah, she's good in it, though. Yeah. Uh, she, she, she's really good in her scenes. Uh, but... Um, in any case, so there's, but there is a lot of different characters. There are a lot of different characters, and a lot of them have different ideas about marriage and what it means to be a woman in a patriarchal society. Yeah. And they don't always agree. And I appreciate that the movie lets them have their moment. Sometimes I feel like the movie oversells certain speeches and certain moments mm. in such a way that it suggests that this is what the movie really believes. And maybe it does. And if it does, that doesn't age well. Hmm. Uh, and if it isn't, I think they oversold it. I think the ending feels inauthentic. I think it's a great way to put it. Hmm. Um, and that stinks. And it's important to remember when you're watching older movies that there are things that are just inherently stinky about them sometimes, hmm. either because of production code or because of racism or because of opportunities that weren't given out fairly or a million other reasons. Hmm. But that doesn't mean the story is invalid. It doesn't mean... Uh, that this isn't a fascinating motion picture filled with incredible performances, and it's really funny. Uh, I, again, the, the ending left me a little cold, but up until then, I was mostly with it, except for like a couple of crappy speeches. Mm. This is a really, really good movie. It's it's excellent. And that crappy yeah. speech you said that was really pissing you off, yeah. 
I was a little uncomfortable because I, yeah, I too thought like maybe that was going to be the message the film was going to leave us with. Yeah, exactly. But uh, in, as soon as she gives that speech, mm. there's this big twist in the plot that undoes everything she says. Like I said, yeah. And yeah, proves her wrong. So that that didn't bother me so much. Yeah, but for a moment the, uh, I was uh, mad. The yeah. ending I'm willing to forgive just because I was taken on this two hour and 20 minute ride beforehand that I loved a lot. Yeah, and it doesn't and ruin it. it and it doesn't ruin good, it. It's, you know? Yeah, it could have been a better ending. I really wish she had just given the guy the finger and said, yeah. I... I I did what I needed to do and I'm okay Even now. if she just like said goodbye to all the women and says, I'm going to go find Steve and left the room, mm. that would have been less annoying. But this whole like hands up in mm. this almost religious pose, right. presenting myself to the man, here I am, that just rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't it, feel right It feels all. inauthentic. It doesn't quite fit the rest of the movie, but um it wasn't so bad that it wrecked the movie for me. It's just, yeah. a, a, it's not an, an awful ending. It's just bad. It's what keeps it from being perfect. Yeah. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, it's pretty damn perfect otherwise, though. It's really good. Did I, I mention I, I love Norma Shearer? <laughs> Did I mention I love Rosalind <laughs> Russell? <laughs> Have I brought that up enough yet? Rosalind Russell is iconic here. Mm-hmm. You're a bigger fan of Norma Shearer. She's really, really good, too. But Rosalind Russell gets the scene stealer roles. She is fucking hilarious. <laughs> like, absolute all-timer performance in mm-hmm. this movie. Like, she's... So damn funny. I loved every second she was on screen. Um, how does this relate to the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Well, as we mentioned at the beginning, that the Rocky Horror Picture Show was a film that was on screen and off screen about spaces for people who would be considered outsiders, mm. often sexually. So the not, Frank, not, that, Frank, not that women are outsiders, no. but uh, I'm because talking about of Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror, but yeah, because of. Um, a, a lot of just sexist tropes in the 1930s yeah. in real life, uh, women were considered like second class. Yeah. But 1930, you know, 1939, women could have only only vote for a, shortly over a decade at that point. I forget uh, the exact yeah. year, but it was not long. It was like no. fit, fit, only like fit, was like 15, 17 years prior. There were still there were still practices in place where men controlled women's finances, even you know, which is absurd. Uh, you know, doctors would like see a woman and then tell the husband what was up before telling the like, there's all kinds of fucked up shit. Like mm. it's a really shitty sexist patri- patriarchal time. It still is, but mm. it was more so. Um, and so having a film that was entirely about women when they don't have to be who they would be around men who might be terrible. Mm. And we can just see how people are in a space where they can be comfortable, even if they're still being shitty, even if people are still villains, even if people are still unkind, even if people still disagree. Um, it's a very different energy and a very different vibe. And I honestly, again, I look at that on a literal level with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where all of a sudden, like, here are these, this would be like, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is like if Steve suddenly showed up in The Women. <laughs> like we're doing yeah. a, we're doing a stage production of the women and we're doing one where Steve shows up a third of the way through and is like oh hi it's like if Godot sh- shows up actually like showed it, up yeah. yeah and that's and it's that contrast where all of a sudden and the thing is is that here those people don't have the power conservative America was the mainstream culture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and men were the mainstream culture for a very very long time and arguably still are uh, to, much to our detriment and I think that having a movie that is entirely about the space away from that is important. I think it's significant that the poster for the women is viewed in uh, magenta and um, it's a little Nell. Uh, uh, Columbia. Columbia. Mm. Uh, 
it's in Magenta and Columbia's room mm. where they are together, free from Frank, in yeah. a very different looking space. I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm. I no. think that's and, definitely on the nose. And and the Rocky Horror Picture Show is is not um, not necessarily a, a women's film. It's um, no, more, more about specifically, more no. about the the male characters generally. Um, but it is also about the women's sexual liberation. I mean, think of Touch a Touch of Me with uh, with Janet, and yeah, uh, mm-hmm. the the strange sapphic relationship that Magenta and Columbia seem to have. Uh, yeah, it's it's in there. Strange They've, in that the power know. dynamics kind of fucked up. Mm. I mean, they can yeah. be sapphic as all they want. I mean, that's that's mm. fine. It's just mm. it feels it feels like Columbia is not very well appreciated in that house no i always felt bad for columbia even the first time i saw the movie i'm like oh she seems nice she's a good tap dancer everybody dies in that movie so it's Ah, but do they ever really live (laughs) every columbia dies (laughs) not every columbia really lives um yeah she gets shot by a riff at the end right but um again i think i think you know a lot of times in movies we're looking to expand our horizons and our perspectives mm-hmm. and i think uh rocky horror takes this to an extreme mm-hmm. but i think for the time the women does too yeah and certainly this there's there's not there are certainly other pictures about women there's certainly other pictures in which women get to have scenes with other women but this level of exclusivity and this gigantic a cast is really distinct and it's really exciting even now to watch it and it just doesn't feel like mm-hmm. other things um, and, uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. I, again, I have a few minor issues with it, but they don't ruin the movie. Uh, and again, it's mostly just, it plays differently now than it would have at the time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, damn good it's film. It's great. It's great. It's just great. It's a damn good film mm. is what it is. What are we doing next week, William? Well, Whitney Seibold, if you love ham-fisted moralizing... <laughs> and and midnight movies we and mentioned midnight, this earlier and midnight movies you're gonna love the next film on our list we're gonna talk about the absolutely legendary film reefer madness which is a film about reefer and madness i've heard it said that it's really uh kind of ironic mm. that the uh, the worst of the anti-drug propaganda movies tend to be the most entertaining when you watch them while on the drug that they're trying to talk you off of. Indeed. Uh, I wouldn't know. Mm. I haven't watched Reefer Madness High, or any movies high for that matter. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, no, it was it's true. Po- it was it was popular. I, I, I can popu- tell you, popular I can tell you it's wa- true. I can tell <laughs> it was you popular true. to watch yeah. this movie while high. That, that was yeah. actually one of the big reasons Midnight Movies took off. Yeah. Uh, El, uh, the 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 theater owner who had the print of El Topo didn't know what to do with it. it. wasn't making money, so he had it on after hours. And one of those rules about not smoking weed in the theater was just sort of skimmed we're gonna over. We're going to let and that one slide. They let it slid, and people were uh, hot boxing an entire movie theater. Yeah. Watching El Topo. Yeah. This is back when you could smoke in a movie theater too, and, uh, like and normally. Yeah, that's true. Just and, weed uh, was verboten. And uh, in in that wave, back came Reefer Madness. Reefer Madness is a very early scare film. Mm, 1936, about, I think. Yeah, yeah, very, very mm. early. Um, not sure about the year, but anyway. Uh, and it's about two young dorks. Like, absolute... Squares. Like, absolute squarest of the squares. <laughs> like, just nothing but right angles everywhere mm. you go. And uh, they're two teens, 
and they're in extremely boring love and then one of them ends up smoking reefer and it turns them into a maniac because that will happen to you the second reefer moves into your apartment or house or neighborhood no, even no, if the, you don't touch it the inst- the it's instant the worst the, thing that's ever happened to humanity the instant marijuana enters your bloodstream you become yeah. just this fiend yeah like a just wild drunken sex fiend and or homicidal maniac it yeah. depends on what day it is it doesn't depend on the weed the weed will destroy you and everything you care about by the way, weed is legal in California now, so enjoy it while watching Reaper Bad. It's legal most places now I know. in the United States. I know. I just I know there are a few exceptions. I didn't. Want, I can't promise that weed is legal wherever you are, but mm. it's increasingly legal because it's really not that big a fucking deal, and it's that constant awareness of how not big a fucking deal it was, even at the time, that made Reaper Madness unintentionally hilarious. Mm. So uh, it is widely available. I believe it's in public domain, uh, which means that if you want to follow along, you might find a crappy copy of it. But it's short. Just, yeah. just watch it. It's hilarious. Sometimes they, they, they do. Sometimes they do fun photographic effects where, like, they'll make they colorized the, it and yeah, like, like, they made the, the weed people smoke like purple just to make it seem extra stupid. Mm. Um, but it's a treat. I've seen it a few times. It's not a good movie, but we need to talk yeah, about. I've seen the, it on the big screen at Ma- uh, midnights. Uh, it, it's in the public domain. Uh, yeah. You can you can get a riff tracks for yeah. it if you if you really want to. And we need to talk about how this film affects. Uh, and we'll talk about how it connects to Rocky Horror on a literal level. In terms, again, we already talked a bit about scare films, but we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the uh, portrayal of the characters within, and also about how audiences have become sort of active participants in certain kinds of films. And that is coming up next week on Episode Zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Episode Zero. We love this podcast, and we love sharing it with you. Um, we would love to hear from you. If you uh, want to write in, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We'd love to hear from you about anything we discussed in this episode, or anything at all, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We also have a Twitter. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Debiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a lot of exclusive content, including uh, podcasts about Star Trek, Batman, Disney, the Academy Awards. We do commentary tracks. There's a lot of stuff available over at our Patreon. And we want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show and none of our other shows would mm-hmm. exist. We just wouldn't be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, uh, head on over to Salt Cat Soap at our Etsy store, uh, Etsy.com. Uh, look for Salt Cat Soap. We just dropped a whole bunch of new designs by M. Lapis da Silva. And uh, some of them are really, 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 really cool. They're all really cool. But mm-hmm. like some of the new ones are like uh, totally awesome. I'm particularly fond of the birthday cake soap. Looks just like birthday cake, but it is a soap. <laughs> and it was uh, it was uh, made for me by M. Lapis da Silva. It was my birthday cake for my birthday. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's really really great and I'm glad I get to share it with the world so I hope you enjoy them um, thank you everybody once again and uh, until next time I see you shiver mm-hmm.